Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye, and today I am joined by writer, speaker, campaigner, and mum, Molly Forbes. Molly is a friend we met through through sharing a mutual passion around this work around ditching diet culture but molly's particular focus is is awesome she is really focusing on how we can reduce the diet culture messaging and the body shaming messaging and the confusion around weight and health around children now molly is a mum and she has had her own journey with diet culture, which we get into in the podcast. And I really appreciate her perspective on the pressures that motherhood brings, especially being a new mum and having had just had a baby and all the pressures that that brings as well. And then we also talk about how Molly is really trying to um, help her own children. And as I said, really work with schools and communities and clubs to make sure that all our children are being treated equally and fairly and with kindness and she's doing amazing work so I really can't wait for you to hear Molly's episode. But before we get into that just a reminder about this month's scheduling over on the podcast and also over on Instagram uh, if you follow me on Instagram at Tally Rye, I am every Monday during lockdown, which is our second lockdown, for the month of November, I'm giving us intuitive movement challenges on Mondays, dance party workouts for train happy Tuesdays at 6.15pm UK time, and then every Thursday we have our bonus Q&A episodes, so please make sure you send in your questions for the Q&A, that is uh, to email into trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And some of you have already been emailing in for Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So it's that time again. Let's play the music. So this week's Train Happy Moment comes from Louisa. Louisa says, In terms of Train Happy Moment, mine relates to my lockdown panic buy static bike. With working from home, I now get to run in the mornings, which is great, so I use the bike for a post-work brain reset and movement. The other day, I was mentally knackered after a really tough day and was not remotely in the zone for the bike. I told myself I would get on, set it for 25 minutes, and if I wasn't feeling it, I would just get off. I started with one of my fave podcasts for company. Uh, This is my edition. Louisa, I'm hoping it is the Train Happy podcast, obviously. And five minutes later, I was increasing the resistance and switching the fan on. All to do with being in the moment and responding to what my body and mind needed. Thank you, Louisa, for sending that in and reminding us that unconditional permission to stop training is really important. And knowing that you are allowed to stop your run after five minutes if you're not feeling it, you're allowed to uh, finish your workout early if it's not right, I think it's really important. Especially if you're in the limbo of, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? 
sometimes you like you say that five minute warm-up is really good at helping us decide whether we actually want to move or whether you know after the five minutes actually we're still not feeling it it's time to stop so I really appreciate that so the email once again if you want to send in your train happy moment of the week to be train happy trooper send your email to trainhappypodcast at gmail.com and that email address is in the show notes as well if you need it all right let's hear from molly so welcome molly to the train happy podcast it is so nice to have you virtually here how are you doing how are you we're just for context for people listening we're just going into another lockdown in the uk um and you know, we're all feeling, I think, a bit <sighs> meh about it. Is then I can a sigh. I think is probably the best sound to describe that. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, similar. I'd say meh, meh. Yeah. Like the <laughs> yeah. I'm. I'm okay. I think the first lockdown. Um, I. I always feel like whenever I'm. I have a little moan. I need to caveat. It with saying how you know I I know how lucky I am in so many aspects but I didn't mm. find it easy mm. I've got two young children so um and I was working around the clock just having I'm sure we'll kind of talk about how that's impacted like all other areas later but I am grateful at the moment um that the school the schools are able to stay open um and you know that's at least takes the pressure off a little bit my partner's a husband my partner's a husband my partner's a teacher so he even if the schools close he will still be working he'll just be delivering all his lessons on zoom um and yeah so there's no there's no furlough or anything like that happening around here we carry on working um freelance and he's he's an essential a key worker so whatever happens even if the schools do shut we will still be working alongside juggling um being parents as well and that was the really tricky thing the first time for us but yeah at least we've got a kind of an end date fingers crossed hopefully on this one um and it it is what it is isn't it we need to do what we need to do to keep everyone safe so yeah I think hopefully this this is a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain that's my view I hope um and you mentioned you are a mum and you have two little girls yeah. Um and I think that's perhaps played a big part into what you do now. So you say you're a campaigner, um an author, a writer and I'm just curious how this all came about because I know you've had various careers in radio before and done all sorts of things, but how how did you get to um working on the campaign that you are now and how did you um become so passionate about helping parents schools and children with their body image um it's been a real ride because I think I think like lots of people I've been on and off the diet culture bandwagon for most of my life it wasn't Mm. until the last few years that I really sort of woke up to how damaging it was and and even realized what diet culture really was you know because we're all swimming in it every day I I was just like, you know, most people I know, it's so normalized. I I just assumed that the things that I was doing um, with exercise and, and eating were just kind of normal because everyone else was doing it. It wasn't until I became a mum 10 years ago now 
that I sort of started to actually feel quite angry and protective of my baby and any messages that might make her doubt herself. But even being aware of how I didn't want her to ever grow up doubting her body or feeling like she wasn't good enough somehow or feeling like she owed the world, you know, her appearance, I still couldn't quite translate how, you know, protecting her from that stuff also translated to how I behaved myself Mm. and it wasn't until she was um she was probably about six so she's 10 now so maybe she was five or six it was a few years ago now and I had just had my second daughter and um I was at quite I was feeling quite low so although I was really enjoying motherhood and I was really soaking up the baby kind of the baby world and like my gorgeous new baby um there was a real identity shift with becoming a mum and there was the first time around but there also was a second time around and we had just moved to a completely different area I wasn't working in radio anymore um or I was but just doing like freelance bits and pieces I wasn't like you know working full-time as a radio presenter and I think that because my whole identity at that point was was you know my whole role was being a mum and being there for other people and looking after other people, my body was almost literally existed to keep my baby alive. I'd grown a baby. I was feeding a baby. I was getting up with her every night because she just didn't sleep. Um, and so my, at that point, my um, an immediate go-to thing to kind of boost my confidence and get back to being me, that's what we always say, you know, I just want to be me again, I want to find myself again, was to basically try and restrict and train and change the shape of my body and think you know if I can get rock hard abs or you know lose the baby weight then I'll feel like me again and I so you know I was doing just it wasn't I didn't see it at the time I saw it at the time as a healthy thing because that's what I thought health was I thought it was all about eating what you eat and how much you move your body and I didn't realize actually probably a lot of the stuff I was doing was actually quite unhealthy Um, Because I was following, you know, what people, lots of nutritionists and, you know, or people with so-called nutrition experience were telling me to do, you know, I was following like workouts online, I thought it was all, it's what everyone else was doing. Um, And then my daughter, my eldest, I was making dinner one night and she asked me why I was weighing spinach. And I was just like, that was kind of a moment for me. I was like, you know, I've told this story so many times, I feel like whenever I say it again, it's like, oh, but it was... It sounds like a cliche, but it was kind of a light bulb moment for me because she, I just didn't, I realized I just didn't really have a rational response for her that I was willing to, you know, for her to like copy, you know, follow. What do I say? Or the reason I'm weighing spinach is because we're going on holiday in six months time. And when you go on holiday, you can only wear a bikini on the beach if you have a really flat tummy. And, you know, that's, so that's why I'm weighing spinach. Well, I don't want to give her that message. So then I started to really look at, you know, why I was doing what I was doing. And that was when I started to educate myself. And I found all these, you know, amazing different movements online and books and podcasts. And I started to learn about this subject. Um, And it is still an ongoing thing because we're always learning and new research is always coming out. And at that point, once I'd kind of gone through that phase of of learning myself and unlearning, if anything, unlearning all the messages all my life that had told me I wasn't good enough, um, I then started to realise how these messages were coming for my children. And it started to make me really angry. And I went through that whole 
anger phase of like, you know, this is awful, this can't be happening. And then I just thought, well, what can I do about it? And um, I am a journalist by trade. I'm a writer. Uh, at that point, I was working as a content creator. So I was making videos for like YouTube. I was writing for magazines. I have all my radio experience. I thought, I'm a really good communicator. I'm good at talking. I'm good at writing. And I'm creative. I'm good at like making content. So I can use my skills to transfer some of the knowledge that is happening in these amazing academic institutions and some of this like amazing people. And I can, you know, help deliver it out into the world to the parents who follow me already online for, you know, my other content. Um, and I can, you know, use it to help, you know, maybe do make some kind of a difference. And that was where the campaign started. And then that was how that all developed into what it is today and the work that I'm doing now. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I hadn't heard your whole story before in terms of the your history with dieting and things. And I'd love to talk a bit more about that because I know there will be other parents listening maybe mums who have feel like they're losing their identity to motherhood. And um, I have to say, like, not being a mum myself, but thinking about this, you know, in the, you know, not so distant future that this might be in my life, like, that feel that is a genuine fear that I think a lot of us may be experiencing or potentially have for the future. Because, I think there is so much pressure on women in particular and mums to to not change, to stay their their pre-baby self but have a child and then somehow like their body's not allowed to change and evolve with this huge life event. Um, and I, I just want to know your thoughts on that and like maybe speak a bit more about your experience around that very real thing of, yeah, having two young children and trying to figure out who you are Mm. it's such it's such a an interesting subject because obviously everyone's experiences are different so I can speak for how I experienced it but one thing that I have noticed and it's still the same now I believe is that the mainstream narrative around the whole motherhood body image experience seems to be that we should be really grateful to our bodies for doing this incredible, miraculous thing, which I definitely did feel. But still, in terms of like representation of pregnant women that we see in the mainstream media, it's only really been recently that we've started to see different types of pregnant women's bodies. So you know, like when I was 10 years ago, when I was pregnant for the first time, I was 26 when I became a mum. So I was 25 when I was pregnant. So I was still quite young. And I was the first one of all my friends to get pregnant and and have a baby. And I absolutely knew that it's what I wanted. Although I was working full time in a career that I really loved. I was also in love, you know, I was, we lived in the countryside. I knew that I wanted a family and I knew that I wanted a baby and it felt like the right time. So luckily, you know, I was able to get pregnant fairly easily. And that then became, it was a wake up call because at that moment, my body had always kind of, I'd always felt like my body was my own up until then. Although obviously like everyone else, I was living in diet culture, but it wasn't until I became pregnant that my body almost felt like it was other people's property like people would come up to you and just Mm. like touch your bump and I remember I remember like being being at an event it was a wedding or something and someone said to me oh I was standing she came up to me before she was like oh you don't look pregnant from behind 
you know, that's such a, and I just, and she was like, I always loved it when people said that to me when I was pregnant, you don't look pregnant from behind because the ideal pregnant body is this kind of neat bump all out the front, you know, and people would say to me, oh, your bump's like this, you're carrying a boy or your, your bump's like this, you're carrying a girl and, and, and how do you like being pregnant? And, and the whole conversation was about my body and what my body looked like and how, you know, you know, what my cravings were and, and suddenly because it was so visible like I almost felt like my body and also my body was literally existing at that point to grow a a human it felt like I didn't have full ownership of my body anymore which was a new thing um and at the same time it wasn't it was such a nuanced thing and it's such a kind of unconscious thing that I don't think I really examined my feelings around that stuff I just kind of got on with it um but I think that then the second time is similar thing when I got pregnant again, the second time, my second baby, it was a similar thing, same kind of comments about the body. But I noticed that, that the initial period I had when I first became pregnant from sort of like, I had really bad nausea and I was very exhausted. Cause the first few weeks of pregnancy are very, for me anyway, they were very tiring. I felt really sick. Um, you know, I couldn't just nap because I had another child to look after. Um, and also at that point I had, we had moved to a totally different part of the UK. We'd moved from just outside London down to Devon. And so I didn't have like my, my group of friends at that point. And so I, I was, I don't think I was lonely per se but I think that looking back now I didn't have those connections that I rely on now um definitely didn't have the network of friends down here back then um and I noticed like in terms of you know it was a similar kind of thing people commenting about you know what your bump looks like you know whether you're carrying a boy or a girl you're having a boy or a girl what are your cravings you know have you put on weight um and I remember that the the with my first daughter when I went to my first midwife appointment she weighed me and she said to me um bearing in mind you know I'm at that point I was 11 weeks pregnant and the only food that I could really stomach was really kind of like really plain starchy kind of food like bread you know pizza a a, a push I could vegetables and stuff just made me feel ill in those early days when I had really bad nausea um and so I was worried about that because you know I was still living in diet culture at that point. And I was like, I don't want to put on loads of weight when I'm pregnant because that would be really bad and it's bad for the baby and I have to eat all this really healthy food. But when I even smell it, it makes me feel ill. And I went for my midwife booking in appointment and she was like, oh, you're, you're, you're here on the BMI scale and just need to be careful that we don't, you know, gain too much weight. So remember like, you know, look at your portion sizes. And like, Tally, at this point, I hadn't done a poo for about two weeks. I was like, you know, completely constipated, feeling sick all the time. Like the last thing I needed to hear. And, you know, I my my initial thing was, like, oh, I need to like watch what I eat and start calorie counting or something. And, you know, luckily I, I didn't do that. I just kind of was able to, I then, one of my friends was a midwife and I spoke to her and she was like, you know, to just follow what your body tells you it needs. And so I took her advice but it was a similar thing the second time around. Um, and and then at the same time, the narrative is around, you know, this is what your body should look like. <clears throat> but also, you need to feel grateful that your body is doing this amazing, miraculous thing. And if you feel anything other than that, then A, you are 
somehow like you're you're not a good mum or you you're you're ungrateful you're not appreciative of your body so you don't or you're vain you know you're you're frivolous you're worrying about the wrong things but this is what pregnant people should look like and don't put on too much weight you know at the same time so all these conflicting messages and so I think you know I just kind of was living with those conflicting messages and grappling with it myself and also aware that I didn't want to pass any negative stuff onto my my elder daughter at this point um and then I had the baby and I had this incredible birth and what I've also found back then this is six years ago now because my youngest daughter just turned six is that you there is a sort of you know pregnant women are often revered you have like the Beyonce with this amazing like majestic bump and these like incredible like you know Katy Perry and you know her music video she's pregnant and like a real kind of you know like almost like pregnant women are like oh you're brilliant your body's amazing which is great but then when you have the baby it's like okay get back to normal now hide it away they don't tell you that your body literally bleeds for six weeks, you know, and that your afterbirth pains when you're, you know, I was breastfeeding, I had these afterbirth pains the second time around that was such a shock to me because I, I thought I, I thought it was another baby in there. Like they felt like contractions (laughs) Um, and I wasn't prepared for them. And you know, your boobs change, my boobs filled with milk and then suddenly they go like rock hard and they're sore and you're kind of everything's kind of getting back to normal. And at that point what you really need is like so much compassion for yourself and you need to really be encouraged to sort of be gentle with yourself and allow yourself to feel the feelings. And I was doing that to a certain extent, but then I felt like, okay, two months has gone now I need to be getting back to normal, you know, and actually my body had taken nine months to grow a baby, my body was not going to be back to how it, it was never going to be back to how it was before, but diet culture, like, you know, the, the ads that pop up when you're on your social media, the lose the baby belly fat fast kind of ads, and, you know, the magazines have like, do this workout, postnatal workout to get, you know, your, your stomach back, and, you know, the, the people I was following online at the time, you know, other kind of sort of mum bloggers, sometimes like sharing diet tips and workout tips and things. And I really kind of got sucked into that thing of like, if I'm going to be successful and confident and happy, then not only do I need to be like a good mum to my children, but I need to look a certain way. And that doesn't involve having leaky boobs and wearing, you know, a sanitary bath pad the size of a mattress and you know wearing joggers like I need to have my shit together you know um and that's difficult that's that's it was a lot (laughs) yeah and it sounds like like you said there's like no grace given to new mums to just to to just be figuring it out for you know we know that for majority of people with in the context of exercise, it's like, okay, you wait six weeks and you have this six weeks grace period. And then once you've got that approval from your doctor, it is like, right, get back that, get that body back mentality because that is the dominant narrative around what women need to do and new mums need to do um, to be seen as valid again. And mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting around this identity bit about like figuring out like who you are 
other than just being this body that housed a baby and then who you are in the aftermath of that. And I think it's so understandable that you do go, oh, well, okay, well, who I am can be this fit, like, you know, like I can use fitness, I can turn and use this thing to try and get my identity back. But as we know, diet culture has gone, well, um, yeah, you can use fitness, but it has to be for weight loss. Like it has to be to change your body. It has to be to achieve a certain aesthetic. Otherwise it's not um, worth it. And I think a lot of us turning to ch- to controlling our food, controlling our exercise, all those things are because so much was out of your control when you had the baby. So of course you want to control, start controlling stuff because it's so hard to be out of control. And I think this is when... We're looking to use food and exercise because that's what diet culture has taught us, that that's how we cope with things. As that control and coping mechanism, that's a slippery slope. That is um, a slippery slope for so many people to fall into. Um, And as you've said, like, start weighing out the spinach. Yeah. You know, get to that point. And yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to hear a bit more about that kind of, light bulb moment with the spinach Mm. and how yeah like how you kind of reconciled with that and like what was that turning point because I think a lot of people listening to train happy podcast maybe they're curious about this maybe they're just sort of kind of understanding what a non-diet approach is and how that they might you know that there are other options out there and like you don't have to be weighing out your food you don't have to be trying to proactively change your aesthetic all the time so I'd love to hear more about your light bulb moment and like Mm. what that was like and and how you felt at the time I think it was it was it was the coming together of so many different things so it was the coming together of all of this kind of existential stuff like the identity stuff and the realization of wanting to kind of like feel like I had ownership of my body again Um, But also at the time thinking that my way of respecting and being grateful for my body and for the amazing miracle that it had performed was to do this to my body because I Mm. thought that that was me that was I thought that that was me treating my body in in a positive way. Mm. But then I started to notice how it actually made me feel and it was the realization that actually my mental and physical health are not two separate things and actually Um, if I'm getting one to two hours sleep a night with a young baby and I'm also I was freelancing still so I was still doing like a bit of freelance work around looking after my baby and actually I was I was breastfeeding as well I breastfed my youngest till she was three so you know I needed like the the calories I needed the energy like actually really what you know what I was doing was making me quite miserable. I was exhausted. I was exhausted anyway. And I was denying my body energy. And I thought that, you know, in order to feel good again, it would change my body. And actually it did, because, you know, diets do often work in the short term, you know, for for me anyway, you know, I did notice, you know, so-called quote unquote results. Um, You know, I did notice that, you know, I was still weighing myself at, at this point. And I was, and I noticed that, the scales, your number was going down on the scales. And I noticed that my, my clothes started to feel a bit looser. 
But in order to sustain that, I had to live an unsustainable lifestyle. It meant weighing my food. It meant getting up at six o'clock in the morning and doing a HIIT workout after having a night of absolutely no sleep, often while my baby like rolled around on the floor. And then it it involved me being grumpy and, and often quite snappy with my husband and my kids because I was tired and I was like doing this workout that I didn't even want to do. And then when I didn't do it, I felt huge amounts of guilt because I felt like I'd failed. But then I also felt guilty that I didn't feel happy with this amazing, miraculous body, you know, already because there's that narrative at the same time as the narrative like, oh, you have to look this way. There's also the narrative that you have to be grateful for your body. So I felt really torn and conflicted. And the spinach thing was that moment that made me think, actually, what is it that I want to, how do I want to raise my children? Do I want them to do this to themselves? What is it? What is it that they love about me? What is it that my partner loves about me? You know, actually, what, what is my idea of health? you know and I think my the the initial thing was well this isn't making me happy so actually maybe the body that I need to have right now is the body that you know allows me to sleep you know and maybe if it means that staying in bed for an extra hour because I've been up all night with the baby I need to do that because that's an important you know part of health as well even though I wasn't really recognizing that at the time and so I just sort of I remember just saying, well, actually, maybe I'm just not meant to have that kind of body. You know, maybe the body that I'm meant to have right now is just, you know, whatever it looks like, you know, eating what I want to eat and not denying myself that stuff and and, and trying to find movement. And actually, once I gave up that attitude, the irony is that I then found a whole new, whole new world of movement that was actually joyful. And I realize now looking back with hindsight that in those early days when I was really sort of really punishing my body really and putting it through quite rigorous kind of workouts and and eating and stuff, um, actually what I needed was, I thought, I thought at the time that that was self-care because I thought that that was me doing something good for myself and something like so quote unquote healthy. But actually what I needed was space. I needed I needed an hour in the day or half an hour in the day or 10 minutes in the day to go to the toilet on my own, to read a book. I love reading and I hadn't read a book in like months. You know, I needed to be able to go to bed early and not have a baby immediately wake up as soon as my head hit the pillow. I needed to be able to go out for a walk and not have a baby strapped to my chest. I needed to not have a child, you know, on me all the time or asking me for something. And I needed to give myself some grace for not feeling guilty for needing those things Mm. because actually those are basic human needs. And my husband never felt guilty for saying, oh, do you know, I just need like 10 minutes. He would often come home from work and sit in the car for 10 minutes before he came in the house outside just to like decompress after the day, you know, busy day with pupils before he came into like, you know, the house with like two young children. And he recognized that he needed needed that time and it made him a better dad. So why couldn't I give myself that time? And once I managed to, my daughter by this point, my youngest was slightly older, so she wasn't like a tiny baby anymore. So I then was able to, you know, 
leave her with my husband to go out for a run I started running or like it wasn't really running it was like a a very slow jog and started listening to podcasts and just I found that just being outside on my own um I tried it and I didn't really like it and then I tried it again and I got into it you know um and and going to like yoga classes you know I found that and and I just sort of tried all these different things and not for not with the purpose that I wanted to change the shape of my body, but really with the idea that this is something nice that I'm doing for myself. And if I didn't want to do it, then I never forced myself to do it. Um, and that is kind of how I have continued. Um, that is still my current relationship. Although this year with lockdown has been, it's brought some stuff up, but generally that is like my relationship with movement. And the irony is, is that it's a much more healthy relationship with movement because I'm doing it consistently now, you know, and it, it, it genuinely, I do view it as a self-care thing. And if I, if, if I'm not feeling it, then I don't force myself to do it. I don't have the guilt now that I had before, like, oh, I failed. I've, I should have done a hit workout this morning at 6am after being up all night with the baby. <laughs> no so, more of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that's a really nice way to really have a great example of movement as self-care. Um, and because as you said before, like the intentions were like, oh, this is my self-care, but it had to have an aesthetic or weight loss outcome. Whereas like when you take that pressure away and you take the feelings of the guilt and the pressure and all that away, you kind of are left with like, oh, okay, I get time for myself. I get to give my body something for 20 minutes just to to be connected to my body again. Because when we're talking about a lot of intuitive movement stuff, a lot of it is about is about connecting with your body. And, I, and, you know, like, this is your experience and I haven't had this experience myself, but I can imagine that, as you've said, like, giving your body over to a baby for nine months twice <laughs> and, and, um feeling like you've lost a bit of of bodily autonomy in that process that actually the the being in your body whilst doing something for yourself just for yourself is a great way to reconnect yeah absolutely and I think the irony is is that when I was pregnant the second time I went to uh, a weekly yoga class, which was the most incredible, like gorgeous hour of my week. It was the mm. highlight of my week. I had such an amazing yoga teacher and we'd get there and there were, you know, five of us in the class and she'd spend the first five minutes just asking us how we were. And so we would just sit there in this like nice studio and just like decompress. And then we would do like amazing movement that felt really good and I felt so connected with my baby a lot of the movement was like you know put your hand on your belly and take a deep breath and like feel your baby kick and it was like right you can do this in labor and and I so I used what I'd learned in the yoga classes and I did I did I I sort of tried to learn about hypnobirthing as well um so to just have some relaxation tools because I wanted to have a different kind of birth to my first birth and I had the most incredible birth, like literally like the kind of birth that I didn't even think was possible. And I remember like being at home and I lit the candles and my um, contractions had started, you know, with hypnobirthing, you call them surges because it's kind of a more positive kind of um, association. But I was feeling, you know, everything was starting to happen. And um 
you know, I was like doing like gentle, like moving my hips and like going on all fours and moving, you know, moving my back. And I felt so deeply connected to my body. I felt like it was, it wasn't like I was connected to it. I was it, you know, because we are our body. Like we say about being connected to our body, but I was like within it and I could feel my baby. And it was this most incredible experience. And then I I had, I I gave birth in a birthing center and I got to the birthing center and I had an amazing midwife. And I remember her saying to me, you don't have to she said I'm just going to watch you have a contraction I don't have to examine you if you don't want me to examine you so she watched me and it was it was late at night it was really quiet I think there was only one other couple there so it wasn't like really busy which was also different from my first time um because the first time when I had my first daughter it was like boiling hot summer's day the ward was really busy I had nowhere to be whereas I was immediately put in this room there was a lovely big like big bath like water birth pool she didn't like prod or poke me she just quietly watched me and she said you are definitely in labor I'm not going to send you home let's just run the water in the bath and get in the bath and see what happens and my baby was born an hour and a half later and I didn't even have gas and air like I didn't even have a a paracetamol and I felt fine and I'd always considered myself as someone with a low pain threshold but I it was in, it was an incredible experience and the endorphins afterwards like the oxytocin like it's just like such I can't even describe it I just felt blissed out the irony that I was allowed my body to do that process and I had total trust in my body to do that and it did it and I felt so connected with my body but then once it had done it then the response is, well, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm not going to listen to what you need. I'm going to listen to what they tell me you need, you know, and I'm going to go back to, you know, the aesthetic stuff or, you know, what, what, what the schedules I should be living on, whether that's sleep or, and also you become, you, you also, you become very in tune with your baby schedules. Everything is schedule, schedule, schedule when they're babies, like when are they eating? When are they sleeping? And you've got all these different people telling you when they should be doing certain things. And it's difficult not to get drawn into that yourself, you know, and Mm. think, right, this is routines, routines, routines. That's what you hear about. And I was really kind of trying to go with the flow, but also trying to feel a sense of control and create some kind of shape to my days and routines and, and, you know, sleeping and feeding and eat what I was eating and what exercise I was doing all kind of came. And none of that was about listening to my own body, you know. Or yeah, even allowing my baby to listen to her body. <clears throat> it's so interesting how you're right, like you had that total moment of absolute connection, and then it's like, and then immediately it's like, okay, back to like not actually trusting my own cues, not letting trust myself. I think that's really, really interesting. So I want to talk about like fast forwarding, and you, you kind of mentioned earlier on about getting to a point where you started noticing the messaging that your children were receiving around body body image, food, weight, um, exercise. And yeah, you've started the Free From Diets campaign, which is, I'm going to briefly explain it and I'll absolutely let you <laughs> explain it, but it's, it's essentially about um, reducing the dieting messaging around schools and setting, because um, a lot of Uh, weight loss clubs slimming groups tend to meet in like school halls and things so they therefore have banners on the railings and things like that 
um, and then send out leaflets, sending home with kids and their book bags and stuff. So um, obviously this is specific to the UK, but I wonder if this is an, is, this is also an international experience for like those listening going like, yep, that happens in my country too, around schools and stuff. So I'd just be interested in, in, yeah, how this campaign came about and how you came to be so passionate about reducing diet culture messaging around children. So I think that the, the first moment, the way, the first the way the whole campaign started actually was I got a leaflet from a well-known diet brand through my door. Obviously a local rep had, had just was leafleting the area. And at this point I was very much in my anti-diet kind of learning phase. I had filmed Naked Beach. So I was like aware of diet culture and aware of what we needed to make people feel good and aware of the research and I was horrified that they were allowed to put a leaflet through my door in like that they were allowed to market in such an intrusive aggressive way Mm. because I at that point I was like who could be they don't know who's living here they don't know if the person living here is someone who's recovered covering from an eating disorder or disordered eating they don't know if this person has a mental health um, issue connected with poor body image they don't know like this is a massively it's gonna be a incredibly dangerous triggering thing for someone to see to get you know it's one thing telling people to follow who they want to follow on social media or you know like turn off the radio if an ad comes on but it's another thing to put something through someone's letterbox so they have to pick it up and look at it you know and I was very angry about that and I thought well I'm really pleased that my children aren't home because one of my daughters could have picked that up and then she'd say to me, what's this? And then I'd have to say to her, you know, and I'd have to have a conversation with her. And at the time that, that made me really angry. So I, I, I think I had a rant probably on Instagram stories. And at that point, lots of people started messaging me. It's just kind of snowballed saying, oh yeah, there's um, leaflets for this company. I've had them in my kid's book bag or yeah, there's another diet brand and they advertise at my, my daughter's ballet club. And, you know, that one person message was like, yeah, um, I was in the park the other day when it was Easter and someone came into the park dressed as the Easter bunny with loads of balloons and a big basket and all the kids ran over to get a free balloon. And it was someone from a big, a big diet company handing out leaflets. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness, they cannot be allowed to do this. I cannot believe that there is not more stringent, you know, given what we know about body image and the dangers of dieting, um, I can't believe that there's not more stringent regulations. So that was when I started, I started like an online petition and did a video about it. And, um, People are still signing the petition now, but it's grown into something much bigger now. So that then developed into, we had a roundtable workshop and people from Girl Guiding UK came along um, from like someone, people from their head office and also some guides. And we also had a doctor um, and um, Becky from Anti-Diet Riot Club came and Laura Phelan um, from Phelan Well and like lots of different people in the room sharing their experiences of diet culture around children and how children um, and children themselves were sharing their experiences. These girls were teenagers, so they just, you know, they were sit formers. So they had just done their GCSEs and been in school and, and they were firsthand telling me some of the messages that they were getting in school that were essentially promoting idealized body 
you know, bodies and saying this is what you need to look like in order to be healthy or successful or happy. And all of the time, it seemed to be coming from a place of good intention. You know, I the, the, the stories that I was hearing were definitely not coming from people who were setting out to damage the body image of children or make them question their bodies. Absolutely not. Like, they were coming from people who had the best intentions of the children at heart and thought that they were doing, you know, a positive thing. But actually, this is where there's a gap between what's happening in the research places, you know, in, in places like Centre for Appearance Research in, in Bristol, for example, and, and other universities, you know, in some parts of the world who are creating really, incre- really interesting research and doing some really important work on this subject. But there's a disparity between what we know is, you know, bad for kids' body image and can actually have really harmful damaging and dangerous outcomes health outcomes you know also and I'm not just talking about mental health but physical health as well Mm. but that isn't that isn't necessarily being translated into the mainstream and we know that like for example with the most recent public health England a better health campaign it's very weight centric it's very much that this is if you want to look after your health you need to be thinking about what food you eat and how much exercise you do in it. It's not taking any of those wider issues like the social determinants of health or any of that um, or any of the other things that we can do to look after our health. Um, And so we had this round table and what became clear from the round table and the um, big, we did a few online surveys and polls and the research that we did, it basically became really clear that there was a real lack of resources for for parents and teachers who wanted to learn about this stuff and find find out more about the subject generally, you know, about the mm. subject of body image generally and why it matters, but also have like some practical tools and, and resources and things to actually help them. Um, create environments for children to thrive in rather than Mm. inadvertently sending perpetuating these negative messages so that was when we we developed the workshop um fake app who's a teacher she got in touch with me she followed me online and she helped me develop a workshop um with kind of an interactive workshop that teachers would like so I had the resources and I had the knowledge but I'm although I'm married to a teacher I'm not a teacher myself so I wanted to make it you know teacher friendly so she helped me kind of make it teacher friendly Um, and we launched that in June it's been delivered to over 150 teachers now we've had teachers in the UK do it but we've also had some teachers in schools in Europe do it wow Um, so it's obviously not just an issue in the UK I know Mm. from like the people signing up for it Um, and I'm in the process of developing a whole raft of other resources and turning it into something like actually a bit more official Um, and that's kind of my next big thing over the next year really but it 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 all happened. It all came about from having a leaflet put through my door. <laughs> and I'd love to hear more of the story. Like you mentioned some of the stories that people came up with, but I, I was doing a bit of research around this prior to chatting today. And I think I, people had said that people's sports teams were sponsored by these weight loss clubs. And um, like that is shocking to me. That is like that little kids are running around with potentially like slimming world across their chest. Like that it, is, yeah. that's shocking. 
But it, it was shocking to me as well. It was really shocking to me when I first found out about it. When I first found out, because my daughters don't have a big banner on their railings. Mm. Um, but when I first started getting people sending me p- pictures of their schools or schools in their community that had these huge banners. And actually then um, my daughter had a birthday party, her fifth birthday party at a community village hall in the next village along. And when I pulled up to you know, put balloons and decorate the village hall there was a huge banner for one of these brands like outside and I was like so this is the issue is that these they're franchises Mm. the reps who work for the franchises have um they have targets they have to meet they have to try and bring in lots of people to come to their groups and by the way I'm not saying that people who go to these groups don't feel helped by them because this is the thing I'm also hearing a lot from people who go to these groups and feel an amazing sense of community. They're often mums who, that's their time. That's the time out of the house that I was craving. You know, they get to see their friends, go out the house. Often they're very much billed as like a family-friendly place so they can take their children along. They have, you know, branded colouring so the children can colour in, you know, Slimming World or Weight Watchers logo or whatever. Um, this is what I've been told. I haven't been to one of these clubs, but this is what I've been told. Um, and it's a really like welcoming, sharing, inviting space. And all of that's great. I just mm-hmm. wish that there wasn't the side, massive side order of body shame that went with mm-hmm. it and the weighing and that this is what health looks like. And the problem is because it is often a welcoming, nurturing space, people then forget that it is a business. And because the NHS has such close affiliations, even closer now since the Better Health campaign with these groups and GPs and doctors and midwives are encouraged to refer people to these groups. That gives it another stamp of approval and another kind of verification rating. And people then forget, they think it's like a public health institution or a charity and not a business that is there to make money that wouldn't be making money if we all had a different idea of what health was and we all felt good about our body and you know if it can if it worked long term people wouldn't have to keep going back so the business model is genius but the other thing about the business model is that you know they're constantly looking to recruit new members well what better way to recruit new members than in childhood you know mm. if we can and they do offer um, you know, various different brands offer free membership to 11-year-olds and 13-year-olds. And it's all under the guise of concern and care. And this is the solution to the quote-unquote public health crisis, quote-unquote O-word epidemic, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to use that word because I know it's like really stigmatizing and triggering for a lot of people. But um, that is, you know, that is billed as this is the solution. This is the problem and this is the solution. And we... The problem is that the mainstream narrative, you know, the media narrative, the narrative that people in schools, everyone I speak to, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily aware of all of the other factors. You know, it's such a weight, it's such a complex issue. And when you make health all about weight, you know, as you know, it's... um, it can lead to really damaging unhealthy behavior and we're not taking into consideration all of those really important social determinants of health and we're not giving we're not giving children at the moment i believe we're not giving them an overview 
um, into ways that they can actually engage with health promoting behaviors. We're telling children that health is all about what they eat and how much they move their body. So we're doing them a disservice because we're not raising them to have a positive, uh, joyful, healthy relationship with food. We're teaching them to fear certain foods and to fear fatness and to um, judge other children based on the size and shape of an ability of their body. Um, and at the same time, we are becoming more and more aware of the negative messages and the fact that more and more children are feeling dissatisfied by their body. But it seems to me that the solution is constantly, oh, well, it's social media's fault. We need to get the kids off Instagram. Um, and I just find it really interesting that, you know, in kids' PSHE lessons, when they learn about health, you know, even at primary school age, they're learning, they're spending a lot of time in the curriculum talking about, quote, unquote, healthy eating and um, exercise. And they, they, but they're not, they're not then learning about, you know, positive ways to use social media. And actually, I would argue that social media is is a, is the biggest threat to health of young children at the moment, you know. And, and that's a really serious, you know, the amount of time that children are spending on screens and how they're using social media. And that is having a massively, massive impact on health. But we're not talking about it. Um, we're still talking about making sure that children eat all their vegetables. And, and fine, I'm not against children eating a right range of nutrient-dense food at all, and I'm certainly not against children moving. But what I find really interesting is that they're coming at it from the wrong angle. They're not coming at it from an evidence-based angle because all the evidence shows that actually if you want to get children to eat a wider range of food, really, rather than sort of lecturing them and encouraging them to think of some food as good and some food as bad we need to be getting them involved in the preparation of food and growing food and getting them excited about where food comes from. But when we're not necessarily always doing that, we're like sitting them in a classroom and saying, right, draw, draw a picture of a plate and draw five healthy things on that plate, you know, and that isn't, if your end goal is to get children to eat a wider variety of food, that isn't the way to do it. Cause the evidence shows that, you know, um, and same with movement, that whole intrinsic and extrinsic thing, you know. Um, and and so there is a disparity there. And that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to plug. I'm trying to bridge that gap um, to actually give teachers and adults and parents and carers useful evidence based information and tools, you know, to help the children. So children have a, you know, not only will children have a. Um, really good view of of what health is in in a non-judgmental you know non-discriminatory lens um but also they're not going to be accidentally inadvertently picking up some of those messages that can lead them to feel bad about their body which is in turn bad for their health I mean yeah there's a couple of thoughts I have on this firstly I was chatting to um like a family friend and they were saying uh, that they weren't able to send their child to school with any sweet things. So no, no sweets, no chocolate. And they were only allowed healthy things in their lunchbox. And if, and if they had those things and the parents got told off and that that was a bad thing. And I just think um, that that's a really, that's starting the whole good food, bad food morality aspect so early on the child in question we're talking about I think is like five or six 
So this stuff, and I mean, I'm sure your little girl's going through it. This stuff's happening really early now. We're starting to try and drill these things home. And as you said, with the best intentions, everyone's just trying to, to raise healthy children. Um, but we we forget that health is has so many factors. And then we, we start focusing on this one thing about, you know, sugar's bad and fruit and veg is good. And we forget that there's like mental health involved. And, you know, we've been talking about children even having enough food to eat recently with the discussion around free school meals within the UK. Um, that sometimes when we're like, I know schools have the best intention and I know that a lot of teachers are just doing what they're told. Um, so there's really no shame here, but I think it's important to just question like, why are we giving these messages? Where did these messages come from? And are, are, is this the best thing for like five-year-olds to hear? Is that going to be plant the seed for a tumultuous relationship with food into adulthood? Because when we look at so many people who have um, eating disorders in adulthood, who have been through the diet cycle, who have um, had a really difficult relationship with food and exercise and have been on, you know, tens, you know, a million diets essentially throughout their life, they started at 10 years old, nine years old. They start, they, they, parents sent their kids to Weight Watchers with the best intentions and that has um, led different children down, down a, a variety of paths. And it's, and I think a lot of it comes from the way we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our bodies. Diet culture taught us to not trust ourselves. We don't trust children's bodies anymore. We don't trust the fact that growth spurts bring on um, a bit of weight gain and or like like letting a child's body do what it needs to do because it's we're still growing and evolving into adults like we we have to interfere way more than we did before and I and I think a lot of it comes back to to diet culture and the fact that it's gaslit so many of us and it's gaslit the parents <laughs> and the decision makers that we therefore think well children can't trust themselves because I can't trust myself so how could a child trust itself because we don't know how to trust ourselves. Um, and, yeah. and the problem with all of that, the, pro- the problem with it is that <clears throat> we're living... I, I don't think we can talk about this subject without at least giving a nod to the political climate that we're living in. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we, need, we do need to be really super aware that um, the conversation around individual responsibility and society definitely has a massive impact on the way that we view health and then the way that we're teaching children about health so it's a very um it's a very simplistic and easy route for politicians to say the health your health is your responsibility and the health of your children is your responsibility and to in order to look after your health you're going to do everything that that you can that's within your power so you know you can be responsible for the food you eat you can be responsible for how much exercise you do but actually we know that it's it's very complicated because if a parent doesn't have access to you know a wide range of nutrient dense food if they don't have the means to buy lots of fresh fruit and vegetables or to keep that fresh fruit and vegetables you know cold and fresh or to cook you know they might not lots of people don't have ovens in in the UK like that's a thing you know and 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 lots of people don't have time to cook from scratch 
you know and so that then adds another layer of shame and guilt because not only are lots of parents and children feeling like oh they're they're failing because they're not necessarily eating the right food but they also feel an incredible amount of shame and stigma because they can't access that food so the parents not only are they being told they're bad parents because their children you know maybe their children don't fit what what we're telling them is is a healthy look but they're also bad parents because they're not feeding their children in the Mm -hmm. way but we're not but but they're not being given any help to to you know actually it's very difficult I cannot imagine like I'm hugely privileged in that I live in the countryside with all this green space I can easily you know walk I can walk my children to school it's two minutes up the road you know we have a, a field on our doorstep we can go for a walk whenever we want it's a safe green space I have the means for my children to you know do dance club and a gymnastics club and also they enjoy it so I don't have to persuade them to do it I have the means to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. And even when money has been tight in the past, I have parents, I know, I have a support network, yeah? So many people, people who I know, don't have that support network and they don't have those means. And we cannot expect, you know, we it's unfair of, of us as a society to put, to, to not, to, to just basically say, well, it's your fault, you know? deal with it and I thought it was very interesting a couple of weeks ago when it was the decision was made not to provide the free school meals during half term the Friday the Thursday or the Friday um the uh, minister for um the minister responsible for food um sent out an email to head teachers in the UK just saying like basically saying like to I shared I shared a screenshot of it a screenshot of it on my Instagram and it was basically saying just to you know, say thank you for doing such a good job in a really challenging time by getting your kitchens open. Um, and we really appreciate, you know, all that you're doing. Um, but we want to remind you of the, and I'm now going to use the word because I'm directly quoting from the email, but we want to remind you of the ne- the dangers of, you know, uh, of living o- with obesity for children and adults and the importance of healthy eating. Um, so please, can you ensure that you're you know, serving up healthy food for your children and you're basically continuing to teach them about healthy eating. And that was two days after the government voted not to feed, you know, children in low-income families over the school holidays. And I just thought, how can they not see that the two go together, you know? We assume that people who don't have access to nutrient-dense food are all incredibly thin, you know, emaciated children like Oliver Twist or something, because we have this idea, you know, this really like simplistic idea around around food and weight, and we don't realise all the other factors that go into it. But actually, if you look, if you start to look at weight, you realise that actually a lot of children who are in higher weight bodies, like often live in, in socially de- deprived areas, and that there's a link with that. Um, now, I, I am not a doctor and I'm not a researcher and I'm not suggesting that I know all the answers to this. But I do think that as, as long as we are continually focused on weight as a marker for health, we're not going to be able to give children the full range of, of opportunity to actually be healthy. But it isn't just about being healthy, because also what we're doing 
is we are continually saying that health is a moral virtue and health is something that you should do to be a responsible citizen you need to be healthy to be to be respected and to be not bullied in the playground and to be you know um treated with kindness and compassion you need to be healthy and if you are going to be healthy this is how you should look and and even taking health out of the equation you know whatever lens you're looking at it whether you're looking at it you know through like the health every size paradigm like actually I firmly believe that (laughs) like the health conversation isn't you know it's one that always comes up and we can't have that conversation you know, body image, we talk about body image constantly. It's all, oh, but what about health? Okay, we'll talk about health. But just take it away from health for a minute. All children, regardless of how healthy they are, have a right to be respected and, you know, accepted and to feel good about themselves, you know, regardless of how healthy they are. And the current conversations that we're having are not allowing them to, to, to have that you know and and so it's it's bad for all children it's bad for children whose bodies don't fit you know the current idealized idea of what healthy looks like it's bad for them and it's also bad for the other children whose bodies do fit that look because they are scared that their bodies they don't trust their bodies they're scared to allow their bodies to change you know and and they're either going to be the bully or be bullied or be in fear of being bullied yeah and how do you, I think, as a mum then, when you get, like, the letters home from school saying that kids have been weighed or there's discussion about what the child's allowed to bring in their lunchbox and we're having all this input, what do you do? Like, how do you set boundaries around, um, you know, having a positive environment for your children? And what advice do you have for other parents who are like okay, I want to I wanna do something about this and I want to protect my kids and I'm not sure where to start. What do you think? It's such a massive subject. I think the first thing that you really need to do is really kind of learn a little, a little bit of the background. And that doesn't mean you have to go and read like a million books, but just, just even like read one book or read one article or listen to one podcast, slowly start to kind of see the other side and, and see the complexity of the issue. Um, but some really simple things that you can do. I mean, I have been, my first, you know, initial thing was to, you know, go into the school and be like, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, and I have been that parent that sends the email to the school after my daughter's had a lesson on, on quote unquote, healthy eating and has come home and been like, oh, I felt like they were saying it's bad to be fat. You know, she said that to me and I've gone into the school and I've written an email and I've had my children go to a a brilliant school with a great head teacher and he's so open and he I went in and I had a chat with him. This is pre COVID. And, and, you know, I talked to him about, you know, the dangers of teaching health in this way. And he really investigated, first of all, what had happened, what um, the lesson was because um, it, it was more complicated. So, but he said the fact that the children have come away, like your daughter's come away thinking this, like is mm. obviously we need to really kind of make sure that she's understood what she was taught. And within the confines of the curriculum, because they have to still, you know, teach, yeah. they have to teach a curriculum. Um, but he was interested. And so um, I have, I do think it's important if something is really troubling to bring up with your school because teachers are open 
you know, to, to, and, and like I said before, like no one goes into teaching because they don't like children. Like every single teacher I know has, you know, they, they're there because they care about the well-being of children, you know, and the fact that we've got so many teachers signing up for the body happy kids workshop shows that, you know? Mm. So I think it's important to, you don't have to do it in a super aggressive confrontational way. You can just do it in a way that kind of offers another perspective. Um, and we have a template letter on the free from diets website, actually, that you can download as and use as a kind of a template. Cause I know that for some people, if you're not used to being, cause I am definitely a people pleaser and I hate confrontation, the irony, <laughs> <laughs> I am not a natural complainer like I'll eat I'll eat a meal in a restaurant that's cold rather than you know complain yeah. about it um so that is like so I have to really care about something to make a fuss about it and um, which shows how much I care about this but there are some things that you can do with your children and things that I do with my children now because if I am gonna I I cannot call out every single time. I cannot send an angry email every single time my children get a negative message because I would be sending thousands of emails every day. I would be writing to Disney. I would be writing to all the the slimming clubs, which, you know, I'm doing. I'd be starting a million petitions a day. I'd be constantly writing to the school. It's important to have these conversations, sure. But I think we also need to have the conversations with our children, And one thing that I do with my kids is we talk about media literacy. So media literacy is this this kind of understanding. It's a way of just like emotional literacy. It's giving children the tools to kind of decode messages that they see and look at it from another perspective. So, for example, I had like a vitamin um, pack in the in the cupboard yesterday. This is this is an example. Um, And. I got it out and my daughter was like, oh, what's that? And I was like, oh, I'm, you know, taking, it's a supplement. It's got vitamin D in, um, because I'd read, I've read the stuff about like vitamin D and COVID. So I was like, I'm going to take it vitamin D. I don't know whether that's true or not. Anyway. Um, and I was like, hey, let's have a chat about the packaging on this. You know, what can you notice about the packaging? And my daughter, my elder daughter, she's 10. And she said, well, I noticed that there's a woman on the front. And I said to my youngest, who's, who's just six, you know, what can you tell me about what this lady looks like? And she said, oh, she's white, she's blonde. And my elder daughter said, she's got really white teeth, you know, and I said, and, and my younger daughter said, yeah, she's, she's quite thin. Um, and I said, and what do you think that's telling us? And my elder daughter said, it's telling us that, you know, we should look like that that she's we should look like that and that if you if you take this vitamin you're going to look like that and then we had a conversation about health and about you know how health doesn't just look one way and how you can't tell how healthy someone is just from the way they look um and that all there would be lots of different tricks that would have gone into making that photo and making that person look that way you know and, and we talked about why maybe they'd used that model on the front of the packaging rather than a different model you know Um, And just having these conversations with children and giving them the tools to ask questions, you don't always have to have the answers yourself. I think that's the thing as parents. Definitely, I've been I've been guilty of this where thinking I don't want to get into a conversation with my kids if I don't have the answer because it's too uncomfortable and sticky and scary. And I don't want them to like know that I don't have the answer. But I have I now like. I think like I I say, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Let's have a conversation about it, you know, and and not shying away from those conversations. You know, I'm also very careful to have like a really 
I use books often as a as a way to like have conversations so particularly with my youngest we've just you know we've got the um, I am not a label book by Kerry Burnell which is a really great book about um, disability and um, you know it's a, it's it's a really it's so beautifully illustrated and it it talks about really important subjects and about disability and disabled people in a way that I think like you know a few years ago I would have been like oh I don't it's it's a scary conversation I don't know how to have this conversation in a in a way that's not going to offend someone so I just won't have this conversation with my kid and actually it's our job as parents to not shy away from these conversations I mean if we look at you know, the huge Black Lives Matter movement this year and the massive conversations that we've had around anti-racism. And I know myself as a white woman, like I definitely haven't been aware of my privilege and the unconscious bias that I hold, you know, in the past. And this year, like, I feel like my eyes have been opened at how much I still have to learn and and how it's an ongoing work mm. and job and i think you know with anything around you know body image the way that you know the way that our bodies function the way our bodies look i think that we don't we need to be aware as parents that we don't always need to ha- we don't always have the answers and we don't always have to have the answers but we do need to have the conversations um another thing that i do is i call stuff out so like if my kids are watching peppa pig for example and daddy pig is being given a hard time by Pepper because his tummy's too big. Like, we'll have a conversation about that. And I'll say, you know, they've they've said this is a joke, but how might that make someone feel, you know? And why why do I not think that, you know? And in this family, like, that isn't what we think. We don't believe that one type of body is better than another. We believe that all bodies are good bodies, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and my kids what's interesting now is that they're going out and they are spreading those messages so like my five-year-old a six-year-old now came home from school the other day and she said oh you know I was in the playground the other day and so and so said to so and so that their belly was too big and I said actually you know fat is just a word like thin and it doesn't and and we don't comment on other people's bodies but also you need to not use that word as an insult and I thought well do you know what like she's obviously taking in something you know Mm. but I I'm it's really difficult balance because you don't want to sit there and lecture your kids yeah you know because they'll just switch off so I try to make it about having conversations and then you know we do a lot of stuff like affirmations are really great and and we do a lot of kind of activities and stuff like the resources that I make for the free from diets campaign that we have on the website there's like activity packs and and, and movement planners and stuff we do all that stuff at home you know this is stuff that I do with my own children as well so <laughs> so let's point people really clearly in the direction um the website I think is it freefromdiets.org yeah yeah and there you can find more about the, the campaign sign the petition find out um if you're a teacher you can sign up for the workshops is that right yeah or a youth worker it's basically for any adults who work with children so we've had social workers youth workers teachers all do this workshop and would you say that's even for um for adults who are teaching like saturday school drama school type things music classes dance classes yeah i'm doing um a session this afternoon actually and i know there's two dance teachers signed up for it as someone, yeah. yep, who has had those dance lessons experience, 
I think, and speaking to a lot of friends who have been through traumatic experience at dance schools mm-hmm. as children, I think that's so important. Yeah. Um, and if we can educate as many adults in this. And I think what's interesting is that through this education, through wanting to do better for children, I hope we do better for ourselves. You know, because yeah. I think there's a lot of unlearning that has to go on oh, with the adult as much sure. as there is for the child. And that that's the interesting thing, actually. A lot of people who um, read my stuff um, will say that, it has forced them to look at at their own relationship with their body in a different way. And, and a lot of the time people go into this, you know, as parents not wanting to repeat, you know, history. They don't want to pass on the messages to their children that maybe they had themselves as children mm-hmm. or they want to give them ch- their children a chance to not. And that, that was essentially exactly my you know motivation as well mm. the, the same reasons I didn't want to re- I didn't want to give my children the messages that I had inadvertently picked up and I wanted to give them you know a bit of um, a chance because although I grew up in the um, 90s when it's like the tail end of when you know the fitness industry started booming and you had you know the online workouts and rosemary Connolly's like hip and thigh diet was one that i remember um my parents were actually pretty aware of this stuff they were both teachers and so they didn't you know i wasn't allowed a barbie because my mum thought she had an you know an unrealistic body and my mum you know was like you know sort of second you know a feminist in like the 80s and, and 90s and she you know, I wasn't, I was even, I wasn't really allowed to watch ITV because of all the adverts, you know? (laughs) So like my parents were like pretty on it, but I still grew up often feeling like my body was wrong because the messages come from all over. And I think sometimes I didn't quite have the skills to be able to um, fight back internally Mm -hmm. against those messages. And that's what I'm hoping to give my girls, hopefully. <laughs> Molly, I could chat to you all day. There's there's, uh, there's other things I wanted to cover today, but I think we've just <laughs> been going on. And I think that's a beautiful note to finish it on. So I want to ask before you go, what has been your most recent train happy moment? What has been a moment of connection for you where you've been able to use movement to kind of give to yourself? Um, oh, it's interesting because... I mean, this is a whole other conversation because, like, my relationship with movement has really been like a bit of a roller coaster this year, you know, with the lockdown and everything. Um, but recently, so we're just pre-lockdown, and I've been—I went swimming this morning, and I—I really—I injured my back last year, and it's permanently injured. I can't run anymore. But I've been really getting into swimming, and I realised when we were in the first lockdown how much I miss going yeah. swimming every morning. Um, just to kind of be out of the house and be in the pool and have that thing of like not having my phone on me as well, just like yes. leaving it. Totally um, uncontactable. Yeah. And no one to speak to. I love it too. That's what yeah, I love about it. I love it. And I bought, um, when we when the pools reopened after the second lockdown, I invested in a pair of decent goggles. Like I spent, I, I'm not very good at spending money on myself. And I, I bought myself a pair of like 20 pound goggles, you know, rather than wearing like the leaky, like 299 ones I had. And I was like, right, I'm going to try and teach myself front crawl. And I've been really working. I don't care about my time. I just want to like see if I can do different kind of strokes. And I've been really getting into it. So I had a wonderful swim this morning and 
it was interesting because I was really focused on like doing my trying to do front crawl I was trying to do 10 lengths in a row and then do some like really good breaststroke and when I got out the pool I realized my brain has been so full the last week because I've got so many different projects on at the moment so many different moving parts and the you know looming lockdown 2.0 is coming and you know all the like my kids schedules and I went I got in the pool and my brain was full and I just wanted to get it over and done with so I could check my emails but when I got out of the pool I realized I hadn't thought about it for like 25 minutes <laughs> and my brain felt clear so that was definitely a train happy moment for me this morning yeah isn't that bliss to just have that like just being with ourselves just being because we're so used to I think to worrying about something to planning something to just be present is really hard at the moment absolutely (laughs) and where can everyone follow you and find you and keep up to date with your work um so I'm on all the socials like Instagram and Twitter at Molly with a Y J Forbes F-O-R-B-E-S um you can find the free from diets website you said freefromdiets.org um and you know all all my new stuff that's coming soon I will I will share it on Instagram and it will be on on the website as well fabulous I will put those in the show notes for everyone to go and find you and find out how they can get involved Molly it's been an absolute pleasure I have loved chatting to you today and thank you so much thank you for having me And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com